We are so excited to announce that we're going to be running a new motherhood support group. Starting September 8th, Sina and I will be leading a 10-part group to help reduce stress and cope with the challenges of new motherhood. This workshop offers new moms with babies from zero to one weekly group sessions that cover issues such as body image, the impact of motherhood on relationships and identity, mindful parenting, and self-care. The new motherhood support group will provide a space for connection, safety, and empowerment as we embark on the journey of parenting together. You will leave this workshop with a better understanding of motherhood and friendships with other new moms. The workshop will start September 8th and be on Thursdays from 12 to 1.30 p.m. You can register on Eventbrite, link to our website and Instagram at lovelink.co, or email us at info at lovelink.co if you want to learn more. Hope to see you there. You have to know what your ghosts are in your closet and what baggage you have because if you don't then they will try to hijack your relationship and turn your relationship into what you most fear. Welcome to Love Link, your guide to love and sex in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is a clinical psychologist specializing in trauma treatment. He is the director of the Center for Child Trauma and Resilience and assistant clinical professor at Mount Sinai here in New York. Through his attunement and wisdom, he helps people heal interpersonal wounds and build trust and love with other people and themselves. He is here today to talk about what happens in hurt relationships and how he helps couples heal and reconnect. To illuminate the healing process, he'll also walk us through a real session he recorded last week. Welcome, Jacob Ham. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, that was a very gracious introduction. <laughs> so weird to hear me described by other people. So, Jacob, what is a trauma therapist doing talking about couples? That's an interesting question. The paradigm that I use to understand what trauma does to people isn't just unique to people who've experienced devastating, horrific things. It actually makes sense of the way any of us responds when we feel threatened or stressed out. And um, I also find that the way to help traumatized people heal is to help them get back into being mindfully present and open to being loved and to loving other people. And so a lot of the work I end up doing is about relationship building to help people overcome trauma, whether it be parent and child or parent and parent or any couples, any dyads actually, or even if, if it's patient and therapist. So how does couples therapy heal trauma? What happens with trauma is that it's often an interpersonal event that hurts the other person. It's rarely that it's rare that I will get um, requests for trauma treatment for like car accidents or discrete discrete horrific events it's more about childhood abuse neglect or other forms of interpersonal injury like domestic violence and what trauma does is that it makes people feel very very mistrusting of other people and unsafe in the world and the world is more more interpersonal than not and so people with trauma end up having a lot of difficulty in jobs, in relationships. And so 
doing couples therapy is actually a way to overcome the impact of trauma on the person's ability to love and be loved. So you said you're thinking about couples, both couples that have been where one person or both people have been traumatized and maybe meet criteria for PTSD, but also that you're using this trauma paradigm with couples where there isn't a trauma history or trauma background. Can you talk a little bit about how it would apply to a couple where there is no PTSD? Yeah. What I've learned about the way that we all work from doing trauma work is that we have at least two, two states of mind. And this is found in other models of, of treatment. But the gist of it is that the more stressed we get, our brains react in a very, very specific way. We become more black and white. We hyper-focus on what is trying to hurt us. And we can only see that. And we also have a bias to interpret ambiguous events as threatening. You know, with with children, I always talk about the Hulk as a perfect metaphor for trauma because it really is like you can be the most brilliant scientist, but as soon as you feel threatened, you turn into this incredibly powerful, rageful monster whose only purpose is to protect yourself and your loved ones. Um, and your intelligence totally goes out the window and your self-awareness goes out the window. And how that's related to uh, neurobiology is that um, there's like, very generally, there's this limbic area of our brain that's designed to protect us. And then there's this part that's more modern, more advanced, and it's called the prefrontal cortex. But that's the seed of everything that makes us human. It's our ability to reason, to plan, to hold back our impulses. But it, more important than that for trauma work, it's our ability to be moral, to be attuned to other people, to be emotionally aware and to act based on what we really love and care about instead of what we're afraid of. Mm. So it sounds like when the trauma is being triggered, it almost hijacks the prefrontal cortex. Absolutely, yeah. The brain is designed where survival is first and foremost. And that part of the brain, the limbic system that protects us, actually gets first dibs on all the information and so it, it registers and processes sensory information way before the prefrontal cortex does. And it has the right to immediately trigger a self-protective survival response without ever consulting with the prefrontal cortex. And so this is why people can start to feel anxious and aggressive or scared, and they won't even know why yet because their brain, the rest of their brain is a meaning-making organ, and it just hasn't made sense of why they're feeling this way, but their bodies are already reacting in a, in a very, very deep way. Can you talk a little bit about the self-protective stance and how that plays out in a relationship? What does that look like? Everyone will recognize it when they see it. It's like from the outside, if you're not the person who's in an, in an, in an alarm state, then it looks like you're being crazy, that you're misunderstanding what I'm talking about, that you're taking everything I say in the worst way. Or like you're being defensive and insecure or something like that. Like that's the common kind of cliche ways that we talk about it. From the inside, it just feels like I don't know what's going on, but I feel attacked and I'm going to defend myself at all costs. And whatever you say, I can't wait to find a moment when I can argue with you and disagree with you and show you that you're wrong. And the other parts of it is that you feel like I can't do this conversation anymore. I want to get out of this relationship or it says, I hate this person, Why, how, how could they do this to me? So there's like both a pulling away from people or there's a move towards in an aggressive way. So 
when people engage in this self-protective stance, what are they protecting? Oh, that's a really great question. And that's actually a really core part of the work I do. Um, because the instinct is just that they're protecting their ego or their pride or they're protecting themselves from being hurt or being hurt again in the same way that they've been hurt their whole lives. But in, instead of thinking about uh, what you're fighting against, I always try to get my patients to figure out what they're fighting for. Do you have any case that stands out to you? Uh, I actually just had a case very, very recently that's incredibly poignant to me and where they are doing incredible work together. And I think it's a perfect case for Lovelink because it's, an, it's a new couple. And it's the woman that I just mentioned. Um, and they're doing amazing work to figure out how to like communicate and have intimacy together. And the, the, the guy in this case comes with a lot more strength. It's clear that he's been loved in his life. And the woman in this case is um, has been severely traumatized by really profound emotional neglect. Um, she comes from a country that's devastated by war, and it's only like three generations out since the war, and I think that has a profound impact on the way people function. And so parents raise their children in a survival way where emotions don't matter. It's all about just like grinding out success because you never you need food on the table more than you need like to have a happy day. Like screw play, go go work. What are the qualities that she responded to in him and vice versa? Um, the qualities that have kept him in the relationship despite um, these explosive arguments? I think that... They're both really intelligent. Um, they both come from similar cultures. Um, I think there was an immediate physical attraction whenever she lost her cool and he like stayed present and didn't react was really exciting for her, even though it was terrifying for her, as well as for me. So I think that was the hook for her. Uh, I've asked him what brought him into the relationship. Um, he finds her incredibly sexy and complimentary to him because he's he calls himself a pacifist and she's in touch with her aggressive side and she will like stand up to people when if she disagrees with them. Uh, she's also whip smart as well. and so he really appreciates having a, a peer intellectually. it's it's magic whenever something works. So how long have you been working with them? The woman for a couple years. Um, and you'll be able to tell that because she has a um, facility with the kind of like um, language of her own inner world that we've discovered together. Um, she's been dating the guy just for a couple months, I think. Uh, maybe more, maybe f three or four. And this is another part of the way I work is that I insist that people do what we do in our relationship in terms of the safety and the expression of needs and wants to do it in real life with the people that they love and care about. And so as soon as I thought it was appropriate, I encouraged her to bring him in and they start to have really bad fights where she was like totally triggered and just like like attacking him because she was so afraid of him and she was trying to also provoke him to become the abusive person that she was anticipating he would be underneath his niceness. And I didn't want 
that relationship to be destroyed. So I begged her to bring him in and to have those fights in front of me so I can help her to stay like present, not let her alarms take over, and for her to be able to really speak about the hurt from which the anger was coming from. She brought him in because they had another fight, a silly fight over the weekend. And it's a classic fight that I think that any of us can get into. And the gist of it was just that um, there was an old iPad and he's, you know, he's a, he's a grown adult, so he's had multiple relationships. And they've had a historic fight about seeing like random things from ex-girlfriends around his apartment. And he's like very, very graciously gotten rid of everything he could from the apartment that's from an ex. And then there was an old iPad that he, he like started up again for her so that she could use it while he's on the other iPad. And she went to it and she grabbed it and she knew exactly what she was looking for. And she went to his photos and was looking for old photos just to pick a fight. And it, and it did cause another fight. And she's like, here it is again. I can't believe we're doing this again. And he's like totally befuddled. Like, I'm trying to get this thing set up for you. And I've done everything you've asked me. And of course, this iPad has, has pictures because I haven't turned it on for three years. So why are you doing this to me? And somehow they get through that. But then the real fight that happened was that a few hours later, she says something like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. So I, I went insane, insane on, on Sunday, and I feel like really bad. You don't tell me what happened? But, so, <laughs> this is so petty, this is so petty, so, so, I was playing with iPad, and then of course, like, I saw some ex-girlfriend stuff, and I wasn't, like, insanely, like, but it's like the stuff should have been gone. This should have been discarded. And then afterwards I got angry. And then like I tried to like break up. But like it wasn't like a, it was very like in a very like um momentual frustration thing and then it was kind of insane like in my head like I was like I was kind of like overthinking like thinking myself that insane I don't know but I like I felt bad and I like promised I would do it again the old the old iPad was charged up and it was sitting next to me and then she kind of goes to fiddle with it and then she asked me to sign on to it so I sign on to it and then and then the next thing I know she does she just goes straight to the photos and then and, like I knew it right so I think right? I, yeah so I knew it was gonna be exactly but, but, then, but so she I knew it have, and I, I could have not clicked it I because I knew that it was there it was there right I knew so that she asked would to, see somebody who would still have it there yes and like and then like he was looking at it as I like was clicking it and I know that he probably was thinking, oh holy shit. Well, and then I clicked yeah. it anyway. So it was kind of an intentional yes. subliminal. Yes. And I, I knew that. And I actually right after right after you clicked that and it came up and I said and he's like, why did you I, click I on said that? You, <laughs> I said you did that on purpose, didn't you? That was earlier in the evening. Then like at, later at night we're about to go to bed and then she 
she she all of a sudden says, you know, I, she gets very upset and says, you know, I can't do this anymore. This is, I'm so I'm so upset, and she jumps out of bed and goes to the living room, and then you know we have maybe like a 25 minute talk about or kind of a, one of those silent talks where you're just not really getting much accomplished, but um, and then at one point. She, she, it was, she, I think she, she threw out some hypothetical, maybe we should break up or um, things like that. If there's one thing I would beg your listeners to not do is to ever say, I don't know if I can do this. Only say it if it's like really sincere. Like you have to know if you're really in alarm mode. If you're in alarm mode, don't say anything. And if your partner's in alarm mode, just disregard all the bullshit that comes out of their mouth. Because it's all just like discombobulated. You know, people think that you speak the truth when you're mad. It's only part of the truth. You only speak the hurt part of the truth, not the part that really that you're aspiring to. I think of like a wounded child that tells his parents, like, I hate you. I wish you weren't my parents. And of course, that's not true. Yeah. Like no parent says, I knew all along you hated me. So the truth is out, right? They they somehow like dig deeper beneath that. But then like the thing is like when I like when I'm like in that thingy, I'm not like necessarily like I am like irritated, but it's it's more like I say these things out of like resignation. Like hopeless and like I'm resigned and I'm kind of like yeah, no, and, and I, I... As opposed to, I like, understand. oh, like, I like I am so angry, or, like, I hate, like, this behavior is unacceptable, but it's kind of, like, it's kind of, like, oh, like, I, like, oh, like, I really, like, don't have the emotional resilience to, like, mm-hmm. work through this, and it, like, my head goes, like, five steps ahead. It's, like, no reasonable person would see like an old photo and be like i must step out of this relationship like no sane person does that and like for me it's more about like i'm very fatigued by like feelings that it's it fatigues me like more like it's not really like about like petty pictures i think if it were about the pictures i would have gotten angry and it should be anger but like when problems problems it's it's when problems come up it's the fact that there is another problem that i need to fix like that is very tiring for me and then each time i need to expand that effort like i need a good excuse like is this like a good enough excuse for like is this relationship like a good enough um worthy enough thing for me to like feel this way i'm also like very defensive and I would like to protect myself from potential harm or like worse feelings. So like in my head, I'm doing many calculations. I am the person with feelings and is the 
understand her. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's never like feelings are. I feel like are never, or they're very like minor. They're they're like spectator ions in a reaction. Like they're there, always clearly there, but they don't get addressed because he says he values peace. I think for me it was just very. I think I got, I became a little, my, my initial reaction was also to go into defense mode because I knew from prior experience that what I could potentially expect, which is um, you know, a very strong negative reaction to seeing something like that. And again, I'm not saying that those, seeing those pictures should not warrant any type of reactions by any means but just a very negative one. Um, and so I think first I went into self-defense mode and then like immediately our our interaction kind of was you know, more distant. And then I thought that kind of went away, but then it kind of came back in full gear. And I think I was just frustrated. Um, and in my head, I, I'm probably, you know, similar thoughts to what she was going at that time, I went through a similar feeling of, oh, here we go, here we go again, uh, you know, like, uh, here's here's the fight that, here's this quarrel that we're going to have, and, you know, about the same topic, and... Um, you start losing hope, too? Yeah, yeah, I guess lose hope, or, um, or, or that... Hopefully we can get back on track, but that it'll take all this effort and um, you know to get back on track. What part made you cry? It was a. I don't think this is the best word, but it was a sense of like. Like and and I know it's it's not in active in, not in an active sense, but I felt like I was being bullied. It's it's this, yeah. And I think to go back to your you know other other word, you know, it's, it's this uh, sense of hope. It's like it's like you know is this like is this gonna get better like I don't want to have this mm -hmm. fight like this type of a fight to this degree you know every month or whatever it is um, it's just it, I told her it's very tiring for her and it's very tiring for me but this is why it works and not works you know because you know like the like I know a way that can tame my tantrum is to yell at this point like, if he yelled and maybe, like, slapped me, like, then everything would be, like, fine. Like, finally, like, the Pacific Ocean would be, like, it, every, like everything would be, like, in order. I have, like, full knowledge that would never, ever, like, he wouldn't yell. Like, he wouldn't be, like, you stupid fucking bitch. Like, he's not. But then, like, I know that kind of, if, if he, like, called me a stupid fucking bitch, she would feel, kind of feel good. He would feel okay. See, that's what, he would that's solve what the I problem. 
her parents were incredibly neglectful and her mom has her own pain that locked her from being able to be loving to her children. And a lot of, I've been seeing this woman for a couple of years now. And the work has really been about both like coming to terms with her mother being the way she is, not knowing what to do with the constant yearning for her mother to be loving, and really also trying to get that relationship out from interfering with her her romantic relationships and her self-relationship because it just gets replayed. It's a fractal of her, her relationship with her mother becomes a fractal of every other relationship she has and her relationship to herself. What do you mean by a fractal? Uh, it's this um, term from chaos theory that's, I think it means like self-similarity at every level of measurement. So, you know, there's the primary, there's a there, there's the primary uh, emotional neglect and abuse that she experienced, but then she internalizes that and she has that voice in her that is abusive and neglecting of herself. And then whenever she comes across any other relationship, she anticipates that same kind of pain, um, and she sometimes makes it happen. Like I think. That's another thing that if you don't, this is a really good warning for couples that you have to know what your ghosts are in your closet and what baggage you have. Because if you don't, then they will try to hijack your relationship and turn your relationship into what you most fear. And how does awareness help kind of contain that or manage that? Um, One, neurobiologically, I think it's purely that it strengthens prefrontal function. Um, just because I, I heard this great uh, phrase today. It's the difference from being reflexive to being reflective. And so it's the first step. Um, it's not the only step because self-awareness if without change is no good. Um, and then you have to make a conscious choice to do something different with your life and know what you're really trying to accomplish in your life. And that's where I think, again, the goal-directed thinking really is important to you really spend a lot of time knowing exactly what you want out of life. And then that becomes like a beacon whenever you're overwhelmed with the cloud of anxiety and fear. I imagine that you also have to do a lot of, in this case, do a lot of work with the partner who isn't coming from a traumatized background to help him understand what's going on in those moments and um, not engage in replaying the traumatic experience right. for her. and. That's why I think that this is an amazing man because um, he came in like the f- one. One of the first stories I heard about him was that she had overreacted to something, and she didn't know what she was mad about, and she just kept yelling at him and t- for like fifteen twenty minutes. And his response was, "So let me get this right." And then he tried to summarize everything she had said, and she said, "Yeah, that's it." And then she felt diffused, and I and I said. That is a really rare guy. We're going to make sure that this works because it's. I don't. I know very few people who can stay non-defensive when they're being attacked because we're all human, and so this is an incredible person. I don't. I think that um, if it were any other person, then I would have to educate them about the fact that they have their own alarms and their own need for self-protection, and and they're going to have their own hulks that will be triggered, and then we have to like figure out what we're going to do when that happens. When I do therapy, I get permission to be 
interruptive and rude and like call timeouts and like stop people from doing things whenever I can tell that their hoax are about to start battling and it's just going to lead to a destructive spiral. So oftentimes we kind of are drawn to what's familiar, especially I think from people who have trauma in their background, they end up gravitating towards people that replay that. So it sounds like this woman actually chose someone that broke that cycle and he wasn't from a background that necessarily was replaying some of the patterns of her past? Um, choice is a very strong word. Uh, forced to by me, yes. <laughs> Begr- begrudgingly forced to. Um, she knows that it's the right thing, but everything in her body is telling her, no, 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 this is too risky. I'm really going to get hurt. If I really fall in love with him, then it'll be the first time I'm going to be really hurt. And her pattern is like, have guys that she keeps at a distance and she feels like she's in control and she can leave them whenever it's constantly like celebrating her courage to stay in the relationship week after week despite how much work it is for her my i'm not insecure but i am scared i am what are you scared about i'm scared about be, I feel like being very close to somebody and opening up is essentially giving the person power to hurt my feelings. So each and every time I am scared. Right. Because I, I feel like my the power is... And I feel like that's a very dangerous move. Mm-hmm. To give somebody the power to have control in how I feel. Right. So I think the issue, uh, I think the issue is that from our talks in the past, um, in this room, that you've perhaps let people in in the past and they've disappointed you and they've hurt you. And so you've been, you're, you've been mentally trained to, to be more protective and be more self, you know, be in more self-defense mode, um, and to and to be much more wary and to not let people in as easily. And the moment that you do let them in a little bit, you you, you start you kind of start like shriveling up a little bit and or or becoming becoming more easily in self-defense mode if some issue arises because you've been hurt in the past? No, I think it's just new. I think I've, it's just new. Like with it's actually, it's, it's just new. Like when I interact with like new people, I know exactly, like, I feel like I have the power. It's very, like, messed up because, like, shouldn't people feel like they're, they have more power when they're in, like, a happy relationship? Like, I feel like that's what people should feel. But, like, I feel more power when I have, like, a, what people would consider a less than ideal because I feel like there is nothing... Like, I feel like invincible when, like, when it's like when I interact with like random guys, because random guys will never hurt my feelings. 
we invite you to spend the next few moments to just listen. Brought to you by Non, spelled N O N, the sound meditation app for iPhone, where no two sessions are alike. So, in thinking back, I mean, either to this woman or to people in general and their histories that sort of inform how they're relating to others, I mean, what what kind of influences? this kind of behavior because there's the obvious traumas of either you know abandonment or abuse but when you say kind of like the smaller traumas the the small t traumas i mean what what does that look like that would then contribute to this terror around rejection or abandonment um the things that i see most in my practice is actually neglect emotional neglect is a really powerful it's hard to measure and so i think it's understudied in our in our um, science, but I think there's been research to show that it's maybe the most devastating of all the traumas. Uh, the physical abuse you can kind of make sense of and it's out there and eventually some people say like, that's them, not me, I didn't deserve that. But the emotional neglect is insidious. And how I see it manifest in the adults that I come for me is that um, they lose touch with their emotions and they don't value their emotions because why feel when no one's going to hug you when you feel sad or whenever it's more destructive it's like just toughen up this is you're being weak and vulnerable you don't need this and you're like there's never been reinforcement for being vulnerable and so they put it away in a very deep place and it's hard for them to access again and then the therapy itself becomes really hard because it's like pulling teeth and having the patient fight you the whole time because they don't, they're so afraid to even have you like open them up in any way. They so badly want it, but they also move away from it very quickly. That captures the essence of being human. We're like riddled with conflict and paradox. And I think uh, Winnicott said it best, like it's a joy to be hidden, but a disaster not to be found. And it's really true. Like so much of my work is really about like knowing that someone wants to be found, but they're afraid to be found. And so they're going to test me and make me work as hard as I can to prove that I really care enough to look for them and that I'm going to be gentle with them when I do find them. I was a mother infant researcher first uh, as a scientist in my postdoc years. And I would have to sit there and watch six minute videos of mothers and five month old babies playing with each other and um, code every second of their interactions. And this was in the larger context of the fact that we now understand that those minute, minute interactions lay down implicit memories in the, in the baby about how interactions will go with everyone else in their lives. And the general ideas are when I feel a certain way, 
Will you get that I feel this way? And will you help me to stay calm or regulated and in control? Or are you going to make things worse, basically? And it's like, it's like muscle memory for the baby. It, it becomes muscle memory for the heart. And so even if we don't understand or remember those experiences as babies, it plays out in our relationship to ourself and in what we expect from other people. And then the other thing that you have to really understand to make sense of relationships is that uh, it's this thing from attachment theory. And the gist of the idea from attachment theory that's so important is that whenever any of us gets scared, we run to our parents to make us feel safe. And then what really screws us up is if the person who's supposed to make us feel safe hurts us, then we get stuck in this weird loop where when we're being hurt, we want to run away as fast as we can. But then as we get more and more scared, there's a need and an urge to go back to the person who's supposed to make us feel safe. And so we're stuck in this loop. And I think that part of the reason why we internalize that inner critical destructive voice is a way to resolve that desire both for the safe person as well as uh, a way to protect you from being hurt by them again. It, like the way I've talked about it with this other man who's been severely abused and he's incredibly self-critical was that um, he learned very early on that the way to protect himself from getting really beaten in the real world was to beat himself up first to make sure that he doesn't like make a mistake that would like cause a real beating. But it's also, I think, a way for him to psychologically say, see, mommy, I love you. You're right. I'm bad. Let's team up against me. I'm the one who deserves this. You're, you're still perfect. Please stay with me. Like, accept me still. Yeah, I get goosebumps even just saying that because it's such a painful experience to um, both want love and to be hurt and then to to feel like so bad about yourself, like you deserve to be hurt. I think that's the thing that hurts the most when I see that as a therapist, to see people who like think that they deserve to be hurt. And with this couple that we've listened to, I mean, it seems very clear that when she gets triggered seeing these old photos and there's some sort of threat to their relationship, she gets really angry. She threatens the relationship. And then when he pulls away, she panics even more. So the story is actually deeper. Um, The photos weren't a trigger at all. The truth is that she's been struggling the entire time. He is happy in their relationship. Every day he comes home and he's just happy that she's there. Every day she comes home, she's like, how much longer can I pretend like I'm okay, that I'm not scared out of my mind that this is going to end? And so I think that struggle becomes so exhausting for her, she almost wants the fight just to relieve her of having to be good and like to make this work. It's about familiarity again. Yeah, had he, had he, I feel like had he yelled, or worse, I would know what to do, or like that would just feel comfortable. Would it also somehow mean that he cares more? 
No, but then it would just mean that it would give me a reason to not not work. Oh. And it, Your fears it, would come it gives me a reason to give up and leave. Oh. And then that, do the same thing. And that's which is actually quite nice. Right. Surprisingly. And I can be like, okay, like finally, like this is the cue. This right. is, it would be the cue. I knew you were like this, you're you're an asshole. Now I'm leaving. Right, but then like he's not like that, like for sure. Like I like that's not his mm. character. Even so So it's not like you really want him to yell. It's a trap for both of you. It's a trap that I set up for myself. Like right. I any of this is not against like, Exactly. So hearing that makes me um Again, I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about it because clearly, like, you were thinking that, and I, at that moment, I, I didn't think it fully through, but I, I, one, I wouldn't do that, but two, like, I, I kind of knew that that was what was going on, but now that we're talking about it, like, I, it's just very upsetting because, because the issue is, like if that's like, I don't like that. No, no, I know, no, I know, I know. I see. That's what I meant. Like you don't actually like it, but but you want to go back to this like com like this comfortable spot, but it's actually not comfortable at all. It's terrible. But the problem, no, so the problem is like, if you if that's your base case thinking, and that's the like if you keep testing me. Like, that's terrible because there's going to be, like, and you, you know, for lack of a better word, like, if you set these traps, right, and, like, you you do these things, like, it just, it, it really wears me down, and it really, like, I get fed up with it, and that's why, you know, on Christmas time, like, you know, that's what, that, that, that's what happens, right, like, no, like, I'm, I'm telling you because, like, I'm hearing this, I'm, like, really upset about it. Now you're here. Yeah. <laughs> Typically, I would like that fact that you're trying to understand her, but I think it's a trap away from... It is a trap. It's how horrible it is that it happened and that it was upsetting for you and that you're getting tired of it. And then you have a legitimate reason to be tired, tired of it. And then you, you're not going to put up with it forever. She needs to hear that because she needs to be scared. So that she, it motivates her to not do that. She has to see that, that there's consequences. There's, it's threatening your relationship. Okay. Do you feel motivated? Yeah. <laughs> now you're scared like it's as if you got punched and slapped. Is that how you feel? I mean, I don't, no, I don't want him to feel that no, way either. But I just feel like when he says this, it's like, it's like he's trying to, like he wants the same things as I do. Exactly. But exactly. like, yeah. So. so when she says, do you, are you upset? Do you want to hit me or something? I think if you went to here, that's what she really wants. Right, so I went to here. Here being like saying, I'm fed up with this. I'm really frustrated. I'm angry. I feel like giving up too. 
I'm really mad that this happened. Then it kind of, it frightens me in a different way. In, in an appropriate way. It, yeah, it frightens me. Hmm. Weird. It makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think it's also, I think it's just also very hard to communicate feelings on the spot Absolutely. when it happens. Absolutely. Like, I, that's exactly what I was feeling, but despite how great or not great of a communicator I may be, but at the moment it's just very hard, it's very it's hard impossible. to say. I think it's impossible. From my own life experience, I know that I I can just be, over, I can be overwhelmed by emotion as well. And it's really whether or not a couple can like go back to that conversation when they're calm and like keep digging for what was really going on. Like the way that you guys just did it, that's really the only thing that you have any control over. When you're in a fight, you can scream and yell and tantrum all you want because well, emotions have all taken over. And come back and do it again the right way. Something I really liked about this session was towards the end where you got her to get in touch with what was at stake in the relationship because that really seemed to provoke something within her. Yeah, um, but before that, the way we got there was really uh, related to what we're just talking about. The, only, the way we got there was that I got the guy to finally say, I'm t getting tired of this, right? And then there was a part where I think I say something like, now you're here. This is what I was waiting for. I didn't know what I was looking for, but now, because when he said it, he's red-faced and tearful, and he's his. you can see such waves of emotion going over his face, and he's trying to just say the right thing, but his you can read the, the turmoil that's happening. And um, so when he finally said, this is too much, or I can't take much more than this, then she freaked out. And it was... I was so happy that she was freaking out because she needs to, part of what trauma does is that it makes you put walls up and it makes you objectify the other person as a not person. And so to see his pure subjectivity as another person in this relationship that can be hurt and has needs too, it's both terrifying, but it's the thing that gets her to come out of her trauma rehearsed shell and be like, oh my God, I'm doing this to you and I love you and I care about you, so I don't want to do that. And so she said, I'm sorry, I'm going to try. But she's also scared and she feels like she's, there's a risk that she's going to become triggered and traumatized by it too. And I was like tracking that really carefully because she was laughing and looking really nervous and uncomfortable. She got out of her self-protective stance in that moment. Yeah, and I was, but I was watching. That was a really crucial moment, whether it was going to trigger her into another defensive attack or, what, or a withdrawal or whether she's going to be able to stay present in her guilt and pain over what she's doing and use that to help advance their relationship. We as a society shun negative emotion, but her guilt is what's going to drive her to do better. So she has to listen to it and be and understand the message of her guilt. And what if it does end? How will you help her through that? I have had this happen with her many times. It's like, okay, let's celebrate the progress we made. She tried she was incredibly vulnerable in some moments. She was incredibly good at saying what she needed from him in some moments. And she needs to like really try to like catalog the, the good parts that she can be proud of. 
and to call on that the next time she has this chance and say, there are times whenever I can actually be a loving person and accept love from other people. And that she could share with him that she was scared, which I thought was incredibly vulnerable and yes, brave. exactly. I think that's the key to doing therapy is like getting people to be comfortable in vulnerability and pain and loss. And I feel like it's very Buddhist, like um, in a way that, that was the other thing I was going to say to your question about like, what if it doesn't work? This reminds me of this, um, one of the most profound moments of my life was um, when I was in my in a religious studies class in college, taught by a, a 70-year-old guy who used to be a Jesuit who left Catholicism because he fell in love with a nun, and they, they ran away together. And he was teaching uh, all these classes in religious studies, which were just about like just anger, love, and like all these big concepts. And I was, went to a, um, I asked him this question. I don't remember what the question was, but I remember word for word, he said, I think that the, the, the goal of life is to learn to love absolutely while always knowing that the other person's gonna leave you, whether it be through death or divorce or whatever it is. It's like to know that loss is an inevitable part of loving, and it's such a painful thing. That's pretty powerful. That is powerful. It also, you know, I think just that statement can make people really tap into the gratitude that they have for the other person, which is, you know, can get lost very easily in conflict or just daily life. And you miss that, okay, this person might not be here forever, or I might not be here forever, whatever it is. And if you're constantly fearing the loss, and you're trying to prevent it from happening, then you're not actually enjoying what you have, versus accepting the inevitable and being able to be present with it. The lighthearted way that I talk to my patients about it is uh, I liken it to eating ice cream. And like, we all know that it, it's either going to melt or you're going to eat the whole thing. And yet we're not like bemoaning the loss of the ice cream as we're licking it gone. We're just like, oh my God, this tastes so good. I can't believe I haven't had ice cream for so long. And so we should treat relationships in the same way. It's, we have no control over how it ends and when it ends, but we sure as hell can enjoy it. Do you think in the early stages of a relationship, that panic, that sort of um, the hijacking of the prefrontal cortex is more common than later in the relationship? Absolutely. Yeah. It's inevitable. And so I'm not suggesting that it shouldn't be that way because another part of the trauma model that I use is that our alarms are trying to save our lives all the time and protect us from being hurt. So it's there for a reason. It's not only for self-protection, but it comes up anytime something important is happening. So it's whenever your alarm goes up, either ask, is there something that's threatening me? Or is there a value or something that I really care about that there's an opportunity for me to like reach? Uh, this is where I think professional ath or athletics really is a great metaphor for doing trauma work because you're going to get nervous. Well, wh what I say to patients is like, you don't care about regular season games, but once the championship comes along, you're going to be nervous as all hell. And you don't want to not be nervous because it's the championship game. It's going to help you to be at your best as long as you're like at a peak level of anxiety, not too much or not too little. So it just reveals that you can really care about what's happening. And so when you're starting a new relationship and you're really nervous, reframe that as like, this one I really like. I really care about this one. This one could be like exciting and, and fun. And 
the cost of getting the ultimate rewards is that you're going to feel the ultimate pains too. It's inevitable. So I'm wondering, I mean, it, it, it's, it seems like when you throw yourself into a relationship, you kind of reap the rewards of it. When you put yourself in a vulnerable position, when you express your love for someone, I mean, you get a lot in return, hypothetically. I'm wondering how you kind of balance that with also protecting yourself too. How does someone who does have a traumatized background or who is terrified put themselves out there and be vulnerable but still are able to protect themselves in a way that feels safe for them? I'm actually the wrong person to talk about this because um, I, I don't want to give a universal answer. I can only talk about the fact that I personally have come to terms with pain and realize that the best things in life can only be gotten with the risk of pain and I don't mind feeling unbearable pain. Um, other people might not be so comfortable with it and so it's really going to be about your own capacity to tolerate and metabolize pain and sit in it for as long as it needs to be there um, and also your ability to really know what you're striving to accomplish. That's really an important piece of trauma work as well that I don't think I understood until I was really deep in trauma work, which is that the more you activate fear and, and operate from fear, the more ingrained it becomes. You're, it, there's a biological wiring to keep you alive. So if your fear kept you alive and safe one time, it's really going to reinforce for you to say, like, don't ever make yourself vulnerable again. It was too dangerous. We can't take that risk again. The body and the fear system is very risk averse. And so one trial learning machine. How have you learned to metabolize pain so well? What's been your process? Um, I realized that I was my worst enemy. That when I was in pain, the unbearable part, well, no, pain itself can be unbearable, but the unnecessarily unbearable part was the voice in my head that was saying, you idiot, I can't believe you did this. Like It's your fault and all these other self-flagellating things we say to ourselves. And instead, I've gotten to the point of being able to say, oh my God, you're in pain again. This really sucks. I'm so sorry you're going through this to myself. And to be more of an anthropologist and say like, oh, so this is what profound grief looks like. And this is what your ugliest ugly cry face looks like. And just be observing of that and without judgment and say, wow, this this level of pain is nearly unbearable. And then like, oh my God, today the pain was like 0.5 degrees better. And then to allow that to happen. Again, it's very Buddhist where... Um, there, you know, there's a notion that um, reincarnation and karma is like lifetime things, but I think that those, like, karma is a moment-to-moment -moment thing. So if you're in pain and you're like bemoaning the fact that you're in pain, then you're screwing up the next moment. Like, if if it rains today and tomorrow's like a beautiful day, and you're like, damn it, I can't believe it rained yesterday. That ruined my week. Then you're not enjoying the next moment. And so part of what I've really learned to do is to just say, today is about pain. Tomorrow, I don't know what it's going to be. But if it feels a little bit better, then I'm just going to be in that a little better space. So I allow myself to be immersed in whatever moment I'm supposed to be in. Do you have any 
advice that you would give to our listeners, particularly around people with backgrounds in trauma and kind of the first step to addressing it and, and applying that into their relationships? Yeah, the the very first thing is that is to uh, become compassionate to yourself. And the way you, to do that is that you have to understand the function of that mean, angry voice inside of you. That it's not just like a curse that you have this. It was actually the thing that saved your life in the past. And so you have to be incredibly indebted to that part of you for having saved your life in the past and trying desperately to make sure that you never are hurt again. But then you have to kind of like reassure that part of you to say like, you know, that was back then. Not everyone's going to be hurtful to you like the way that this person was. So you have to give other people a chance. And the truth is that we kind of want other people in our lives and not just be holed up in our little safe cave. And so I kind of want you to be quiet for a little bit and let me try to like figure out how to love people and be with other people. And I, and it's like, I don't worry, I'll, I'll be safe and I'll need your help to like, to be safe. So I'm going to keep listening to you whenever you tell me that something's bad. But it doesn't mean that you're going to make all the decisions. I, I made the decisions about what we do. Soothing that traumatized yeah. part. Yeah, and respecting it. So, yeah. And if you were to give one piece of advice to couples who are going through a difficult time, you've given us a lot of wisdom today, but if you were to distill some of it down to one message, what would you say? Wow. It goes back to compassion for self and other and forgiveness and to recognize that mm, that everyone has the capacity to hurt themselves and other people and it just comes from a place of being hurt and so forgive yourself for hurting someone and forgive the other person for hurting you because it all just comes from places of being hurt too and to try as hard as you can to reframe the anger and aggression and the destructive impulses into vulnerability and yearning for love and and needs being met instead of seeing the scary hulk maybe try to envision the hurt the, child yeah yeah, yeah. well thank you yeah, so thank much you, for being with us today you're welcome thank you Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.